This is This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and on this podcast, which we do every weekend, Paul talks about the uh, big stories that appeared this week, especially on his website, thisiscommonsense.org. Well, here we are. Today is Halloween, and uh, we're trying to figure out what you wrote about this last week at thisiscommonsense.org. The biggest story was Amy Coney Barrett. But uh, you have the ongoing story of the election in two different places. How do you want to handle what you wrote about? I want to go in reverse order. And I want to talk about yesterday's first. And then Monday's was, in essence, my take on the presidential race by critiquing P.J. O'Rourke's take, which, of course, was kind of funny because he has a, has a bit of a sense of humor. So let's get to that last. That's that's uh, that's like our dessert. First, let's feel really bad. Let's feel really bad about the world we live in, because Glenn Greenwald, who I think is one of the best journalists out there, one of the most interesting, get Paul Jacob and Tim Verkula and the rest of, of the world a story that's interesting and that's important and that maybe you haven't heard before, obviously... Uh, he was the key guy, I think, in breaking uh, the story about Edward Snowden. And uh, but he's he's had a great take on U.S. foreign policy and following what's happening. You know, so much, and this is this is true for the presidential race. I think it's true in the way that people assess Donald Trump. Uh, I think it's true in the way we assess other people a lot of times too. That. There are things we don't like. We don't like the way they say this or they do that or we don't think that they're, you know, maybe their posture is not good. I don't know. Whatever it is, we spend way too much time on it compared to what they actually are doing. And and so uh, I see Grant, Glenn Greenwald as someone who is bringing us stories about what's actually happening. Um, for all the time during the Bush administration, George W., uh, Obama, and really through throughout the, the Trump administration, um, how many drone strikes are killing how many people on a daily basis? And I don't have any idea. I guess if I dropped everything and looked into it, maybe there's a way to find out. Maybe not, because, of course, they're classified. Um, and I think they, they're a process by which, you know, people find out about them and they become unclassified, at least, you know, that there was one. But it's been a huge issue. And it's just the sort of thing that we need journalists to care about finding the truth and bringing, us to, bringing it to us. And there's a level of uh, that it's not anything special. It's just doing your jur- journalistic job. But doing your job has a level of respect for we, the consumer, that has to be there. And that's not there, I think, in so much of our media. So much of our media speaks to us, writes to us, as if we were morons, as if we were children, as if they're telling us just as much as our little brains they think can hold. And the second they think that they might have a little factoid that could cause us to run askew from their narrative, 
they don't give us the factoid or they give us that fact so twisted and spun and so on. And Glenn Greenwald is the face of the opposite of that, giving us hard stories, being critical, criticizing your own guy. I don't know who he's going to vote for for president, but he says everybody at the intercept, the journalistic institution that I really have liked, uh, which is coming totally from the left on all kinds of issues. I disagree with Glenn and I disagree with, you know, where Glenn and I are close. So I call him Glenn. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I disagree with them on all kinds of things. Big deal. As long as they're telling us interesting things that we want to know and uh, we can we can sort that out. But he has stepped down from that publication, uh, is resigning, a publication he put together. I say publication, it's really online, so it's not a publication, but humor me. Um, but, but so it's just, un, you know, kind of bizarre to create a publication and then for that publication to censor you. And that's what happened. He wrote a piece about Biden, critical of Biden, about the presidential race, critical of Biden in numerous ways, which I think is easy to do because I think Biden has a track record that just is horrific, horrific. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to imagine. On some issues, he's gotten better, he talks better, but you know, he has been there for 47 years doing exactly the, the horrific things you didn't want him to do. So I don't know. It's uh, you, you can say maybe he's wised up in some cases, but he doesn't seem like, you know, somebody who shouldn't be criticized. And and but he says all, all the editors there are pro Biden and don't want anything written that's critical of Biden. And so. They wanted him to change his post. He wouldn't do it. Um, and we called that commentary the itch to edit because, of course, the editors were uh, were blocking. Um, they had kind of the itch maybe to censor. But, of course, it's not censorship. And we make that clear in the commentary. And I, I almost feel like it's kind of silly that you have to do that for the for the the person out there is going, it's not technically censorship. We get that. And if we misspeak, just you know, please whisper the right stuff we were supposed to say. But but the the truth is it feels a lot like censorship because we live in a world in which we're being denied information. See, the, the whole purpose of the First Amendment and journalism and the press and the media is to give us information. And when we find that they're blocking that information and that the reason they're blocking it is they do not want us to know negative things about people they want us to vote for, that is a heck of a problem. And it has become pervasive. I mean, the media, as, as we pointed out on this uh, podcast numerous times, the media has long been slanted to the left. I moved right uh, <laughs> to the left. And, uh, and that's not, you know, there's some reasons for that, I think. And it happens to be the way it is. But it has not been this crippling censoring in the sense of blocking information. Not as the government. Yes, we can turn the channel. We can go listen to Fox, 
tell us about stories that the other TV networks won't tell us. In the same way that if we just listen to Fox, we better switch over to the others because they're not going to tell us. Fox is not going to tell us about some stories the others will. And that's the, the problem is we live in a world in which the media thinks it's okay and that they can call themselves journalists when they are, are purposely denying us information. That's just, it's sad. And, and uh, here it is, days before the election. And here's another piece. And of course, part of what Greenwald was talking about was the Hunter Biden stuff. And the Hunter Biden stuff, if you've heard some of the tapes, maybe there's some innocent explanation that doesn't involve Joe Biden in any way. But I've heard tapes where he's where Hunter is talking about talking to the CCP spy chief, you know, the head spy in China. I'm just a little uncomfortable if Hunter Biden is representing, you know, the government in some way. Uh, that's, you know, or representing his father who happens to be in the government. There's been a lot made of the one uh, thing where the big guy was going to get some money and, and people are presuming, with I think some reason to presume, that that's uh, Joe Biden. But one of those cases, that was in 2017 that particular email. So he wasn't vice president at that time. But I think with all of this, there are two things that stay with me. And and I say this, you know, this, this podcast, I am not an expert. I'm not an expert in politics. I'm not some brilliant political analyst. Um, I'm a guy who loves politics and who has been out there collecting signatures to put things on the ballot and working in different campaigns and talking to a lot of fellow uh, very loquacious political nut jobs <laughs> for my whole life. And so I've been around the block some on what, you know, what's happening out there and what people think and what people might be able to do about it. <clears throat> and so when I when I kind of talk about these things, I don't have any crystal ball. That should be clear. But I think that I may be looking at it the way that many of you in the audience are looking at it, which is, wow, look at what's happening. What's going to happen next? And most important of all, what can I do about it? And when you see this level of control of the dialogue. Um, this is, you know, and, and, you know, I increasingly being on Facebook or being somewhere else, it's frustrating. I tell myself, I need to spend more time being politically active and less time trying to convince people who disagree with me that I'm right and they're wrong. And so I'm not so much uh, trying to convince people through this podcast that I'm right and they're wrong. I'm trying to share what I see out there. I'm trying to connect with people who will help me do something about it. But I do think that there are a lot of people out there like us who... 
this campaign. I really, I should take this call. I need to talk to him, but I can't. I can't. <laughs> Maybe I should turn my ringer off. That's an old-fashioned ringer. Boy, that's, that really cuts through uh, a lot of uh, noise. That's an old-fashioned ringer. Yes, yes. And now I've probably lost my train of thought. But uh, but anyway, the, the, the bottom line of all this is um, I'm hoping that we can, that, that this program will be a dialogue, will give you a sense of what at least I see out there, and, and back and forth. And we don't get uh, nearly as many com comments as I would like on YouTube. Uh, and if someone has an idea, uh, you know, I'm out there. I'm out there. Paul at libertyifund.org. Uh, I have to have the easiest cell phone. I posted it here or there. You can find me. Let's do something about this because we are at a point in which things we never thought we would see, we are seeing. And one of the points that I make in this commentary, the itch to edit about Glenn Greenwald being censored by his own creation, The Intercept, which had such a neat name and what a neat publication, agree or disagree with a particular story, neat idea of what they're trying to do, and now it's ruined. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there on a bet. But one of the things that we point out is that again and again and again and again, we're told that Donald Trump is destroying norms of democracy and so on. And I think at times they're right. There's some things I really, really do not like that Donald Trump has said and some things he's done that I haven't liked, but a lot of things he said that I, I find offensive and, and harmful. I don't want my kids to see it. I don't, I, I don't want him to do it. I don't want him to say it. But in terms of norms, what, what breaks more norms, important norms, than to think that you're trying to block criticism of a political candidate days before an election? That's not the American way. That is just not. what. When people talk about the, and we'll get to a script, in fact, maybe we'll just segue straight to Tuesday's script, a ghost, not a ghost, ghost of an argument. There's no A in that. Uh, ghost of an argument, but because we hear about the Republicans packing the court well, as a... You mean the Democrats? No, oh, no, 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 not that. Oh, Democrats? What are you talking about, Tim? Well, am I behind things? Did you think that the Democrats were going to pack the court? No, no, no. As soon as the Democrats had to start wearing that label of court packing, which in, in reality has always meant expanding the court and then right. jamming a bunch of new justices on there because, oh, now there's all these openings for us now that we have political control to put onto the court. This is the way it works in most of the world. It's why people have no safety, no human rights. It's horrible. One of the beautiful things about America is that as screwed up as our court system is, it's 50 billion times better than the average court system. There is some independence. There are some rights that people can hold on to. And we need to do better, but my goodness, to think of just destroying the independence of the judiciary. That's crazy. And of course, 
as as Democrats are upset that they lost presidential elections. And and trust me, they must have thought for the longest time that they that Republicans would do what what Reagan did, what H.W. Bush did, what George W. Bush did, which is nominate kind of half 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 judges that are more of your thinking and half that are the other side's thinking. I mean, think of how many justices like Souter um, or, you know, Kennedy was was not a terrible, terrible justice, but wasn't the greatest. And, and that's, a, that's a Ronald Reagan uh, pick. And of course, you know, so, so they want, the Democrats all of a sudden want to Pack the court. They think they can they can uh, sell that to their base, and of course to the media. And so Republicans start to bring it up. Reasonable, reasonable, thoughtful people, including a lot of Democrats and people on the left who are thoughtful and care, happen to have different views, but aren't you know apparatchiks of some Marxist revolution. Um, there are people who recognize how disastrous that is. And so as that starts to seep out there, all of a sudden, Democrats start saying, well, the Republicans have been court packing. And the media has played along. And it's ridiculous. Because, look, the, are, are Republican senators hypocrites? I mean, come on. Is there anyone? Their mothers wouldn't say no. <laughs> they might cry a little tear and refuse to answer or something, but they wouldn't lie and say, no, of course they're hypocrites. And of course the Democrats are too. And of course they play games with the court. And it's why we should do things like term limit the Supreme Court, even as we keep lifetime tenure for federal judges, which keeps them independent. But these, these court packing uh, allegations are called nominating justices, which is, of course, a constitutional duty, kind of, certainly a right for or a power that the president has. And then see the Senate is able to, to approve that nomination and give their consent, or they can not give their consent. And sure, Republicans, uh, I'm not defending any Republican senator who said stupid stuff and, and did the wrong thing. I said at the time in, in a commentary that they should bring up the nomination and defeat it because he wouldn't, Merrick Garland, I don't think would improve the court. And of course you have a right to your judgment and to say, I don't think you'll improve the court. You're a nice guy. I don't like, I, I don't like your philosophy. That's what, that's what the whole political process is about. So what Republicans have done, other than block Merrick Garland with a with a rationale in the press that was kind of phony, and we've come to see. But what they did was constitutionally valid. And nominating justices, um, what I think Trump has done in effect is to bring a business acumen to judges. In other words, I think he's had like a sheet. It says we've got this many justices and we have this many openings and we need this many nominated. In other words, been serious about doing it. And there have been fights in the past. Uh, they, the Democrats ended the filibuster because Republicans were blocking justices. So there's, there's been all kinds of gamesmanship and there's going to be in the political process. That's not, you know, the, the, the people who wrote our Constitution 
would not be surprised that there was political gamesmanship going on. That's the whole, that's what they were trying to take care of. That's why there's checks and balances. And it's why we need a court that is better situated in the Constitution that names how many justices there are going to be and doesn't allow whichever party just seized control of the Congress to willy-nilly change the entire judiciary. That's got to go. But again, we see this huge constitutional structural problem and no real talk about it in the media. In the media, it's all horse race. It's all the Republicans said this, Democrats said this, and any, you know, no, no step back that says maybe we as a citizen-controlled society ought to all be considering what to do because there's no real buy-in among the media. Again, if, if you're giving a narrative and only giving people information based on whether you think they can handle it and still agree with your narrative, well, you don't have any respect for them in the first place. And, and that's, that's where we are. We're not deciding the issues of the day. They're all being decided for us. And, you know, democracy has, uh, because of the way it's being used by Democrats these days, democracy means I won. It's democracy when I win the election. If I lose the election, it's not. And, uh, and anyway, the, the interesting thing about ghost of an argument in my mind, and please go read it at thisiscommonsense.org, uh, is that the specter of Hillary Clinton is everywhere in, in what's happening. Um, I think we dodged a bullet, as I've said many times, in, in 2016, when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton would have nominated three justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think my First Amendment rights to spend money in political activity uh, would be gone. And it would be simply what I was allowed to do by members of Congress. That's what the Democrats want. Uh, we've written quite a bit of it uh, about it at thisiscommonsense.org. Um, but the thought of Hillary Clinton having those three picks, it is, it's a huge difference. And you can see why liberal Democrats are, are furious that, uh, that they didn't win, that she ran, she was such a bad candidate and ran such a bad campaign to boot. Um, now they've got Joe Biden, who's a bad candidate, who at least has handlers who won't let him, you know, go outside too often um, or take questions. But, you know, it's, that is politics, and the, the judiciary is created through politics. It's who won that gets to pick, but we need a sensible, rational process so winning one time doesn't mean you get to change all of history, uh, doesn't mean you get to just remake the court, and that's a, that's a, it's a big problem, and uh, it's, a, it's a very scary thing that Joe Biden, who I keep being told by friends who say you should vote for Biden, he's just a moderate, run-of-the-mill Democrat, not threatening in any way. Well, this not threatening Democrat will not tell us whether or not he will completely destroy the idea of an independent judiciary. Wow. Talk about destroying democratic norms. There's a big one. And it's not a tweet. 
It's not kind of a nasty, jerky comment. It's policy that will affect how the government rules over every law and every constitutional protection we have. It's serious, serious stuff. Well, that brings us right into uh, Biden territory. And you wrote two pieces on Biden this week. And uh, one was uh, Mondays, which was, you say, about P.G. O'Rourke. The other one was uh, Wednesdays, I think it was, uh, which was a piece by Daniel McCarthy that appeared in The Spectator. So, yes. So, yes. And they're kind of similar in the, sense that, in the sense that they're both about what do we make of this election. <laughs> really, that's really what we're talking about here. What is going on here? In talking about the two candidates, uh, and it's an issue I know is, is one of the ones you mentioned was, was a voting issue for you, war and peace and foreign interventions and how we handle that uh, is a huge issue. And it's a, it's a voting issue for me. I was scared of Trump in 2016, even though he spoke a much, much better game about, well, I mean, let's, let's, I mean, we all feel like Charlie Brown with Lucy holding the football because, I mean, George Bush, George W. Bush, he talked a, about no nation building. He talked about a humble foreign policy and then decided to invade a country that we already controlled two thirds of the airspace and because they had all kinds of weapons that we never quite found. Um, it, you know, in Iraq. And, and so I, I think um, McCarthy, I, I generally agree with where he was coming from, which is that Joe Biden is a creature of the deep state. That eh, creature may not be the right term, but he is a, a, uh, he's a, he's a fellow traveler. He's, a, he's friendly with the deep state. He has been in Washington for nearly 50 years making policy. He believes in the experts will tell us, the doctors will tell us, follow the science, follow your, your friendly neighborhood NSA, you know, uh, uh, you know, analyst or whatever, uh, national security agency. So, and his, his record in foreign policy, it's actually this, in, in doing this piece in deep with Biden, we fear the deep state at thisiscommonsense.org. We fear the deep state. Don't have, you know, don't have evidence of everything that's happened. It's not that sort of thing, but a lot of very genuine fear. And, um, and of course, it, you get to Hunter Biden in Ukraine and being on, on tapes talking about meeting with the, the Chinese communist spy chief and and this is, is scary stuff. And of course, all you hear is there's no evidence for it. There's no evidence of any crime being committed. It's been debunked. We're not going to respond to it. But there's tapes and and the tapes don't say we committed crime. We violated 327 criminal code dash 72B. <laughs> I mean, what, what are we expecting? Yeah, these these criminals just don't cooperate with our legal system. I don't know why. <laughs> it and so it's so it's like just dismissed, and it seems to me that there should be a lot of discussion about what's going on and the optics. And and frankly, I think it's more than optics. But just to be generous, let's just say it's optics. 
of Hunter traveling on Air Force Two with his daddy, the vice president, to go make deals where Chinese banks are giving a billion and a half dollars. And this, you know, why is there no exposés in my Washington Post about this 3.5 million that came from the former wife of the, uh, the former, she may be a former wife too, I don't know, but the wife of the former mayor of uh, Moscow, I think actually they are divorced, so I think she is the former wife. But anyway, you know, send him 3.5 million. I'm just real curious about that. And I think it's very problematic. If I were the vice president, and I, anybody listening, if you were the vice president of the United States, and you were just given the job of being the point man for Ukraine policy, Ukraine, this, this country that wants to go more Western and pro-democratic, but has the tentacles of Russia all over it, wouldn't you want to know if your son had joined the board of directors of an energy company that was viewed by many people as being dirty and corrupt, connected to dirty and corrupt politicians, doing dirty and corrupt deals. And when you found out, wouldn't you say, what is going on here? I mean, it's your duty to be aware and concerned. It's your job. And what was, and there's, there's evidence, obviously, that the Obama administration knew and was concerned. But the truth is, if I'm president of the United States, and the son of my vice president is traveling around on the plane, going to these places, and he's on the board of some crooked-looking uh, industry that he has absolutely no connection to, no knowledge about, no skills that he brings, at least... You know, I don't know. I don't know what they do in their boardrooms, but nothing that, that jumps out as being marketable to this company. I think I'd say he either leaves that board or I've got to find somebody new to be the point person. You can stay as vice president, but you're not getting on a plane and traveling to Ukraine because you might put some you might put your kid on board and make deals out of the back of the plane. I mean, this is a problem, and I th I have a feeling if it were Republican, that the that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the, and the old dead networks would have a real problem with it. It it is interesting though that that Biden in doing this commentary, I found the first thing I liked about Joe Biden, he voted against the Persian Gulf War. The first one, um, the one way back the, when we were young. Yes. Or yes. young, this I is, say. Yeah, this is Daddy Bush, uh, and this is, we're, we're bailing out the emir of Kuwait uh, after it certainly appears from what I've read that we kind of gave, gave mixed signals to Saddam in the first place to invade. Saddam Hussein was arguing that Kuwait was cross-drilling into the oil field underneath Iraqi land and sucking out the oil. And you can imagine that that might upset somebody if you're sucking out the oil that they're, you know, kind of counting going into their bank account. And it turns out 
yes, indeed, they were. Uh, but but anyway, it, it looks like the U.S. gave them, you know, OK, at least that's a, a lot of the analysis, uh, historical analysis of it suggests that um, either way. Again, it's us remaking the world, the map, the way we want to remake it. And um, and I think was it it gave rise to this idea that we were a superpower and that we were nearly all powerful. And of course, because at the time I remember them talking about the Iraq was the fourth largest army in the world. <laughs> I mean, come on. It, it, you know, and not that it isn't a bigger army than some places. I don't know how many men, maybe it is population-wise, the fourth largest army. It was no threat against anybody, and it was a joke. And But we rolled into town, and we were so tough, and the shock and awe, which, frankly, I, I if you're going to go to war, you want to soften up all the targets. You want to fight the war in a way that your own troops have the least likelihood of being killed. I think you kind of owe that to the parents and loved ones of those troops, as, as well as the troops themselves. Um, but it was, it, it led, I think, to this view that we are just the 20 foot tall, uh, you know, Goliath. And I think we've behaved like Goliath. And, you know, if, if people haven't, haven't read those stories in the Bible, Goliath is not the way we want to go. Um, so this, this though, I think is a, um, is a, is a, uh, interesting issue because to me, Trump's foreign policy is harder. You know, it, it, it sounds and it comes out oftentimes as non-interventionists, not wanting to go further into Syria, wanting to pull people out then it sounds like nobody really got pulled out. If they got pulled out, they got moved over into a rock where they're, you know, right next door. And so it's, you know, it's one step forward, two steps back. Afghanistan has been somewhat the same way. Uh, but you then compare um, what, what Trump has done in those regards with Obama, who came in as the peace candidate, and who not only didn't get us out of Afghanistan, but surged tens of thousands of troops into Afghanistan. Um, and, and so, you know, grading on a curve, Trump is the first president going all the way back, I guess, to Clinton, but for 20 years. Uh, he's the only president in the last 20 years who has not had a regime change war. Um, so... You know, Obama decided to let's let's go over and you know unleash trouble in in Libya. Um, so, I think I think Trump has a a very good you know kind of record to stand on compared to others, and compared to Biden, who of course voted for the Iraq War and some other things. Um, the other thing I find that's interesting is that. In the one area where I want a more aggressive foreign policy, and I'm not talking about let's go to war, although I think anytime you're dealing with a country that's belligerent, you have to be willing to go to war, or you're probably better off just not dealing with them. 
because they're going to eat your lunch if you don't have some backbone to say, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. Uh, in the same way that in life, if, if, uh, look, if, if, uh, you're not going to stand up to somebody, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't walk down their street. Um, so I think, I think when you look at China, which is a huge issue, kind of a, it's an issue in the periphery, but it's amazing the way the polls have changed in, in terms of American public opinion being very anti-China. It's not only the virus, it's also the, the Uyghurs, the fact that uh, they, they don't believe in any sort of human right, freedom, uh, it's, it's sick. And it's totalitarian, and it's very scary. And what's happened in Hong Kong, what's happened with the fact that they have a million-plus people in concentration camps. I mean, it, it's as if we're seeing Nazi Germany take off again, and we're kind of, oh, yeah, whatever, oh, concentration camps, like the, the script we did a couple of weeks ago of the former ambassador who said it's not genocide, and then said maybe it's cultural genocide. And of course, cultural genocide is genocide. And here is a learned expert explaining to us how what? We're not supposed to be concerned about genocide? I mean, that's really what the thrust of his comments were. Don't get all up in arms and screw up this relationship over genocide. It'd be, the, it'd be almost the same thing as saying, look, Okay, he's massacring the Jews. But, I mean, we got to trade. We might need Hitler for climate change. I mean, we need Germany doing the right stuff with climate change. That's every time I hear it, hear them talk about China, that's what goes through my head. What if they were saying the same thing about Nazi Germany? And when I look at people saying, Taiwan, what do you know? If what can we do? We wouldn't go to war over Taiwan. Well, should Britain have gone to war over the Sudetenland? Was Chamberlain really right to have said peace in our time? I've got the document from Herr Hitler, and we've got peace because we gave them the Sudetenland, because we gave China this territory that they've always claimed. Well, you know. <laughs> Tyrants claim all kinds of things, and they can always claim it, but it ain't theirs. And 24 million people who have gone from martial law for 40 years to a vibrant, free society, not perfect, but free and democratic, and just a, just a sign, a beacon to the, the rest of Asia. And I just think if if the world does not stand up and say, look, no, you're not taking them. You're not swallowing them up and snuffing out that free society, that, that experiment that, is, that I see as so exciting in the same way that I still see the American experiment as so exciting. But Taiwan's is newer and it's in a critical, critical place. And you know, as a, as a libertarian, the, the kind of the mantra is always non-intervention. <clears throat> and of course, I, I still agree with non-intervention. We don't want to intervene places that, that we wouldn't have to. 
But I do believe in entangling alliances. And I believe in them when people freely decide they are safer aligning with another country than not aligning with that country. I don't want to force the American people to do anything the American people don't want to do. But the idea that people somehow can't align across national borders, I just think is silly. Why not? I want, if, if, if we're being attacked by somebody, I'd like two or three others. I mean, if, if, if I have a couple buddies down the street, is there any reason why I wouldn't make a pact with them if I live in a tough neighborhood that, hey, if you hear screaming in my house um, and you see people trying to smash in the windows or something to get us, would you come help and I'll do the same for you? Is that a crazy thing to do? I don't think so. And so I have really come to like this idea of creating alliances where they're needed. And I look at NATO and I think, I, I don't know that we're really needed there at all. I think wealthy Western Europe can defend itself against the Russian threat. And maybe if we weren't there, they'd stop, they'd stop buying all their energy from Russia and, and creating a, a worse situation. But again, it's up to the American people. It's not insane to have an alliance. The alliance hasn't been a terrible thing. There haven't been a lot of wars. And I like the same thing in Asia. I think, I think Japan's ready, South Korea, all of those countries see the threat. Even countries like the Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia see the threat of, of China. And I actually see it as a way, if we have the right leadership, to give up the insane role of world policemen where somehow we're responsible for every two-bit fight anywhere in the world and we, we just take on every role. And to start to say to people, no, that's not, I mean, in the same way that in your neighborhood, if you're the strongest guy and you go around and you're, you know, you've done, you're, you're everybody, nobody does anything without you, you're the guy. At a certain point, if you're smart, you're gonna realize I'm getting older Maybe I can't always be that guy who's got the muscle. And you start to give other people responsibility. You start to share and because you need that. And I think in a national way, um, I think we want to get to a position where the world is more secure, we're more secure, and we're not doing everything. We're not pulled into everything. We have, we have set our relations in a way that we have protection, they have protection, it's mutually beneficial, and it's not the world's superpower coming to the rescue always. That's not smart on our part. And frankly, I don't think we can sustain it because one of the things I, I like about doing things in, in Asia is that I think you have countries there that will come and do their part. I mean, Japan is not a, a country of slackers. Taiwan is not a country of slackers. South Korea is not a country of slackers. I don't know where there is a country of slackers, frankly, but I, but I got going and I thought it really sounded good. Uh, no, uh, um, but these are countries that they have some wherewithal and the idea that they would just somehow start being pushed around by China is not, it's not a fait accompli. They, they want to do something about it 
And I, as an American, I look, I'm, I'm only living, you know, so many more years. I want to leave this realm thinking that my kids and grandkids and other people I never met are going to have a world in which they can say what they want instead of be worried that, you know, Xi Jinping isn't going to like what they said or or Black Lives Matter isn't going to like what they said or Antifa isn't going to like what they said or some other, you know, if we can find a, a white supremacist that he's not going to like what they said or she. There is a... a triple or quadruple entente forming against China right now, and and the United States may or may not be part of it. India and Japan have signed a pact. Russia is apparently going on board with India and and Japan, probably Australia as well. So it's, it's going to be very interesting, interesting this next several year, <laughs> these next few months and, and years, where the uh, alliances are forming. There is so much happening in Asia. About a year ago, a little more than a year ago, it was a year ago last summer, I started trying to educate myself about what's going on there. And I mean, I'm reading like 10 articles a day and and I'm, I'm, I'll see an article and I'm going to read it later. I can't get to them all. So much is happening and so much has happened in terms of people picking up on the threat from the Chinazis and Australia, you know, they're in a heck of a trade war. So, you know, the idea that the trade war was just something, you know, Donald Trump wanted to create, I don't think is quite accurate when you look at the fact that there's all, you know, the U.S. is not the only problem uh, that, you know, the only kind of conflict point with China. Everywhere is a conflict point. And I was aware of Japan and India uh, talking and so on. I wasn't aware they signed a pact, but I also was not aware that Russia uh, has gotten engaged in that. There's, and there's, there's been a lot of fear that, that they will team up with China. There doesn't look to be much uh, evidence for that, as far as I can tell. They they don't have that much in common. I think that uh, I think they're going to see China being uh, increasingly isolated in the world. And, and, you know, I I think that that's the right way to go. I think they need to be isolated. I'm for uh, divestiture. I'm for, you know, I mean, I'm for, I like that Trump said the funds, the federal funds that are, you know, pension funds and I guess whatever, 401k, I guess they're all pension funds, um, but that they can't invest in Chinese companies and so on. Um I because I think we're at war with them. And and frankly, Paul Jacob is at war with the Chinazis because I see them as the biggest evil on the planet. And and not a not a misguided this isn't someone who wants to raise taxes more than you think they ought to be. This is this is a totalitarian. This is a mass murderer. So it's a genocidal maniac in a nice suit. Yeah. So I, I think people should worry that Biden is compromised with the Chinese. Um, and uh, there's evidence for it. And the, the fact that the Democrats are generally crazy about Russia in a way that's creepy. And meanwhile, the Obama administration and Biden himself especially were crucial to the Ukraine uh, coup that happened in was it 2014 
that's all very weird. I mean, I don't under, I don't pretend to understand it. It's just that I think that there's some political alliances, you know, entente's you might say that aren't shared by both parties, and that one of the things in the background here. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always talking about the deep state, and by which I mean several factions within the administrative state, especially the military-industrial complex and the intelligence community. I'm always talking about them, but it's also obviously the parties. Is that our political parties? I mean, the Democrats have been soft on China for a long time. Well, and and here's the thing: left to their own devices, the State Department is going to get the most touches by businesses that want to go make money in China. And they got 1.5 billion people. That's a lot of customers, and a lot of them have money now. So that's a huge draw. And you know that if nobody says boo, they're going to facilitate as much business as they can. And it, we've seen over, you know, since Tiananmen Square, that we don't seem to ever push back in a way that, that, tells China, no, you can't rip off all of the intellectual property. No, you can't <clears throat> require that every, you know, business has to be tied, you know, every every deal that gets made, the Chinese Communist Party is, is part of the deal. Um, we have not, it seems to me, done anything but, as a, as a country pursuing a foreign policy, done anything but say, hey, let's facilitate making money in China as best we can. It's all good. We're all getting rich. And and look, I have nothing against people getting rich. It is all good if you're getting rich, if you're not in the process facilitating a genocidal totalitarian. So, um, you know, that that's the rub. That's the rub. And and I think there's no question. There, there is some question as to what will happen going forward if it's a Biden administration. There is no question in my mind that if Hillary Clinton had defeated Donald Trump, that our relationship with China would be just fine today, just fine. And that totalitarianism with Chinese characteristics would be on the march full speed ahead that much of the rest of the world, Australia, others would be questioning how much they can really afford to fight back against the Chinazis. I mean, and, and I, look, I have no crystal ball. I'm just speculating what would have happened. But I think nothing, nothing, no change in our policy. And, uh, and, I, and I think this is a huge, huge, I mean, if, if you took seriously being the world policeman, I mean, are you the type of policeman that, you know, look, if there's some you know, there's some little kid somewhere doing something wrong. Oh, you're coming down on him. But then the, the big bully on the block, China, comes down and you're you're what? Going, oh, oh let's just make a deal. Um, so I, I do want, if the U.S. is going to project power anywhere, project it with allies who are free countries, who you have real relationships with, and project it defending against a real threat. And boy, uh, there's a 90-mile wide waterway called the Taiwan Strait. And in my thinking, that is where World War III could be said to start or not start. 
And I'm convinced. I have a friend who who is very concerned about China, but he's just scared to death about that we would go to war with China. We couldn't go to war with China. We can't. That can't be an option. Well, if that's not an option, you know, uh, Taiwan's gone. Just a matter of time, and so is most of Asia because they don't have the the wherewithal without, I think, some help in defending themselves. And I really see that China will be blocked. China's not going to take over India. China is not going to take over huge swaths of land unless it starts, I think, in Taiwan. And that's why I just see that as so critical strategically. And then when I think of the story of how in the last 50 years, 60, 70 years, Taiwan has gone from a, a basically a totalitarian fascist state to a vibrant, free republic, democracy. Uh, it's, you know, you just, that's the way we want the world to go. We don't want it to go back the other way. Well, we haven't really talked about two of the pieces. Now, one of them we've alluded to, the, the one on P.G. O'Rourke, uh, which was your Monday piece. Yes. But your piece on uh, uh, California and reverse racism is kind of interesting. I don't know if people even realize around the country what's going on there. No, I, I think that they don't. And it, it, I'm surprised there hasn't been more of an issue. Um, it, you know, again, we live in this world where there's so much media and there's so much information. And yet somehow I feel like we're less informed than we were before. But Thursday's script was a referendum to reinstate racism. And around the country, people have voted again and again to end racial preferences where a certain number of this race gets to be you know, put into this particular university uh, or <clears throat> gender preferences. And this we're talking about in education, in hiring. <clears throat> and it's pretty much has been settled law, but of course, and in, 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 I shouldn't say settled law, settled politically in that in states like California, uh, Washington, Michigan, democratic strongholds, Affirmative action has been voted down and and civil rights, basically, that you have a right not to be discriminated against has been voted up. And yet we we are in a society where race is, in some people's way of thinking, everything and everything must revolve around it. And unless we can make decisions based on race. We can't solve racism. <clears throat> I think it's insane. And it turns out, I think a lot of people in California think it's insane. They voted for 209. That was in 1996. And it said no racial preferences, no gender-based preferences, education, hiring. Um, and there's something else. I can't think of what that is. But, uh, uh, but anyway, the... This Prop 16, the pro side has spent $20 million, roughly. The anti side has spent $1.2 million, or $1.4 million. Um, and, and so one side has got all kinds of money and is making the case that we need diversity. The ballot title, I think, is very slanted in favor of a yes vote. 
it talks about allowing diversity as one factor, which of course, once you allow it as one factor, you open up in the in this initiative, you open it up to use racial preferences in any way you really feel like. And so, uh, but it's California. This is deep, deep blue California. And every Democratic politician known to man is on the pro side. Uh, Facebook has given money to the pro side. Who else? United Airlines. Next time I have a choice between United and American, a lot of places you fly, that's the choice. Oh, American, you just made a sale. Um, but all of these folks putting money behind restoring racial preferences. It's just, I, you, I just shake my head. And yet I went to a website today. The polling has been a little mixed, but it doesn't look like this measure is doing well at all. And I went to a pro 16 website today to check some things out. And they have a little note that says the latest poll shows 45% yes, 45% no. Now, this close to an election, with so many people voting, for them to be touting that suggests to me and some other people, I haven't seen polling, but other people who I think have, have suggested that uh, that it's not going to win, that it's not doing well. And if it does win, it'd be very, very close. But with all that money, all those political folks, yes, this is the way to go. I think the people of California are going to vote no. And uh, very, very interesting. And what will also be interesting is whether that vote in deepest blue California against going the way of racial preferences and gender preferences and, and just making discrimination the law to somehow fight discrimination, um, that's a big story. And I have a little inkling that it's not going to be a very big story. Hmm. So... Well, just that the media will not play it up in the way that I think it should be, which is, wait a second, we're we're rushing headlong in so many ways into this, you know, not post-racial, but let's deep dive into everything's about race society, where we must, before we even say hello, delineate all the racial, you know, differences and so on um, in that environment for deep blue California to say, no, we don't want that. We want to, you know, keep the law we have that says no racial preferences, no gender preferences. That's a big story. So do you think it's going to depend on uh, how popular Biden is around the country? I mean, obviously Biden's going to win California, but what do you think is going to happen? Is it going to go along blue red lines? What is, what is going on here? Oh, on this, on this initiative? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And I think it's one of the beauties of initiatives. There are times where I suspect the uh, an initiative will track party party lines. And so you can kind of say, well, the Democrats like this, Republicans don't. But they don't. I'm I'm working on something in Arkansas uh, uh, against both issue two and issue three, both of which are just fraudulent things on the ballot that don't tell voters what they do and do the opposite of what voters think they're doing. Uh, nice. You know, it's it's uh, they don't they don't use force. They use fraud there. Uh, but uh, but on one of the measures, Tom Cotton, 
who is deeply popular. He's probably got, does has no Democratic opponent, only a Libertarian opponent. He's the latest poll I saw. He had 75% of the vote. In the same poll, he has sent mailings statewide urging a yes vote on issue three. Now, issue three will further wreck the initiative process so that if people want to petition term limits or other reforms onto the ballot, they won't be able to. It'll just be too cumbersome and expensive and so on. So it's a terrible measure. He's promoting a yes vote. But uh, my group, Citizens in Charge, is running Facebook ads in Arkansas. And I can't tell you how many people who who say, I like Tom Cotton, I can't believe he's wrong on this issue. And so it it just, you know, not only do I like it because they're going to vote right on, on issue three and vote against it, but I like that it it's just so easy for people to say, yeah, well, look, this is in black and white. I know what it does. I'm for it or I'm against it. I don't care what Tom Cotton, I, I, that this guy sounded like he was going to vote for Tom Cotton. Others who've made the comment, they like Tom Cotton. They don't like him on this issue. They disagree, and they're going to vote against it. And you see that all the time, You, especially on these uh, affirmative action measures. They were passed in blue states where all the, you know, the Democratic establishment was dead set against them. And so if the parties had sway with their rank and file, which, thank goodness, they don't, um, then, of course, these things wouldn't have passed. And, and you see that on a lot of initiatives. It, it, re, it refigures the electorate uh, because all of a sudden, and, and in some ways, uh, the, the last commentary being the uh, right at the top of the stairs, and we should mention just a couple of things, but that's, the, that's what Trump has done that makes it, I think, that, you know, there's some polling difficulty in that because there's so much societal angst and and retribution if somebody likes Trump that they uh, pollsters are saying at least some that I've talked to that it's tougher and tougher to get people to to get the right sample because people who are for Trump are saying no I'm not going to answer your poll um so that's you know that uh now I'm going to lose my train of thought as to what what the other part of that was on on uh there's another factor about uh uh Trump and polling. Oh, oh, here's the other factor. There tends to be a, you know, okay, this is how Democrats feel. This is how Republicans feel. But you go to a place like Pennsylvania and you have all kinds of suburban Republicans who are going to vote for Biden and not Trump. And you have Democrats, especially working class Democrats, who voted Democrat in almost every election that they've ever voted, who voted for Trump in 2016 and will vote for Trump again in 2020. This, uh, I have no clue how things turn out. I think uh, the map is not kind to Republicans, uh, but, you know, Trump could pick up a state he didn't before, like Minnesota, and he could end up, on the other hand, he could end up losing states he won, like Arizona or even North Carolina or Georgia. So it's, it's. I think it's very, very tough to tell. Um, I do. I tend to think that the more people are voting with coronavirus on their mind, the better for Biden, because I think it plays into the weight of all the 
angst uh, in the media about coronavirus and a pretty universal chorus of Donald Trump. I, I, don't, I can't tell you how many people I, I hear basically blame Donald Trump for everybody who's died is his fault. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, it doesn't make scientific sense, even though we're all following science wherever it leads us. <laughs> With his little, wasn't it Mr. Science who had the little flute and he danced around? And Mr. Pied Science, and... maybe. Mr. Pied Science. He was good as rats. <laughs> and children. Think of the children. <laughs> oh, goodness. No, um, I thought it was interesting about P.J. O'Rourke, because on Monday I did, right at the top of the stairs, P.J. O'Rourke had done a, a little video and he wrote a, a piece about Trump and Biden. It was pretty funny. But in the end, it was, even though Biden was wrong on everything, he couldn't go with Trump because Trump was damn wrong. And at the end of the day, you, you kind of weigh what's he saying, and he he almost acknowledges that he can't really point to a lot of terrible things Trump did. Uh, he pointed out he didn't like his immigration policy. And and I think that that's a, a place where uh, Trump deserves blame. The problem is that some of the most serious blame is for using the cages that the Obama-Biden administration purchased and had waiting for him. Um, so, it's, so it's not... It's not necessarily so clean to go, oh, well, uh, we want to change because you'd be changing to the originator of, of those, you know, cages for kids and so on. And, and of course, the whole issue, I think, is, has gotten blown out of a rational discussion, again, because it's all political football and, and no sense that we as citizens ought to be considering what, what policy do we want? And then you guys who go to Washington, pull the lever to do what we wanted you to do. Anyway, um, but at the end, he he basically, Biden's wrong on everything. I don't trust Trump, and after a term in office, I still don't like him. He, he referred to him as a toddler at the top of the stairs. And of course, I've had kids. That's a scary thought, because you, know, you, you only can get up those stairs so fast, and they can come down really fast if, if they take the wrong step. And so I got it. I got the analogy wholeheartedly. And I thought, I would so take a toddler at the top of the stairs, because I can get up those stairs pretty quick, then I would take Joe Biden. Just not even close. Give me that toddler at the top of the stairs. And, uh, and again, it's, it's, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where I, I don't, I don't like kind of the, I can't believe you voted for this person or voted for that person. I look at voting as a self-defense mechanism, a uh, self-defense tool that is not really calibrated very well for your benefit. And so it's, it's like using a tool that you can only do so much with. And so you're trying the best you can to get that tool to turn things kind of the way you'd like with very little ability to do so. And it oftentimes requires thinking, okay, I don't like everything this guy says or everything that guy says. Maybe sometimes you almost don't like anything, but what are your big issues? Um, if I were a, a transgender male, 
female who wanted to go into the military, I think I'd vote for Biden. I wouldn't vote for Trump. Um, if your biggest issue is, you know, well, I mean, you can just kind of lay it all out. I want, you know, my biggest concern is freedom of speech because I think it's under attack in ways that most people I don't think appreciate at all. And, and so the Democrats desire to literally amend the First Amendment free speech protection for political speech, the kind I want to, I want to, I want to talk. Uh, that has horrified me and that's been going on for years. And it means that, you know, I would never vote for a Democrat who didn't specifically repudiate that view. Um, and, and so everyone's, that's not everybody's issue. I've become very concerned with policy towards China because I think the world potentially hangs in the balance. I think we could be facing a World War III type situation or have decades of peace and prosperity depending on how we deal with the Chinazis in the next two, four years. So that becomes a big issue. And so when, when someone votes for Joe Biden, you know, unless they're mistaken about where he stands, I figure they're trying to get something as best they can. I wish him luck. I, I'm sad about me, but I wish him luck. And the same, I can, I, you know, I, I certainly can see that someone could vote for Donald Trump saying, well, he did this and this, and I want him to do this, and he's the guy who would do that, and then find out, oh, he didn't really do that, he did something else that we really hate. You know, I'm not going to blame people who voted for Biden as if they commit the sins that he will commit as president. And I'm not going to blame people who vote for Trump as if they're going to commit the sins he's going to commit as president. Um, and I have to say, I'm in Virginia. I can cast a, a uh, unblemished vote for Joe Jorgensen, uh, the, the Libertarian Party candidate. And, um, but there's, there's part of me that just says that's almost too easy. It's almost too easy. And that there is a battle going on between folks who want a state that is frighteningly large and that reaches into people's lives with a depth and a disrespect that I find horrifying. Free speech is under attack in ways that I just find horrifying. And of course, one of my problems with Donald Trump is the, I believe it's at least two times, if not more, that he's mentioned the FCC when some, some media outlet said something he didn't like. And that I find I mean, I think that's some of the worst stuff he's done. Even just saying it is a is a implied threat. And then, of course, you go to the Democrats, and my goodness, they want to police speech in every way, shape, and form. So uh, there's no question in my mind that Trump is better on it. But so uh, there's a lot to weigh, and uh, and I think people uh, should not be telling other people how to vote, and would get further by explaining why they're voting the way they're voting and leave it at that. Well, that seems awfully reasonable of you. Um, and I am literally, I am legitimately 
undecided on who, who I'm going to vote for, if I'm going to vote at all on Tuesday. But I must say that of the people who talk about why they're going to vote for somebody, I'm not finding people's reasons this year for anybody very good. I mean, not not your. I'm not saying you. You you just made your case pretty clear. I'm, I'm not. I don't want to say anything nasty about you at all. It's all right. But I'm there, holding back. Yeah, but I have the, I have a lot of friends out there whose cases for or against Trump or for or against Biden are pretty weak, pretty silly sometimes. You know, I, I've had an argument on on criminal justice because I said uh, Donald Trump is heads head and shoulders better on criminal justice reform than Biden. And I think I overstated that. I think when you look at some of uh, Trump's drug comments and stuff and some of the things he's done, although so often he talks a terrible game and then ends up doing some things that turn out to be much, much better. And so it's like just, you know, your policy is pretty decent, but you talk about it as if you're a lunatic. So, uh, you know, he's talked about the death penalty for for people who are selling drugs and stuff like that, which is, you know, exactly the wrong direction to go. Um, but but one of the interesting things to me is that uh, someone I was discussing stuff with sent me an article uh, where someone was saying that if Trump wins a second term, that they've got all kinds of plans. And this was, the, I think, the, the uh, person who, who leaked this, supposedly, is the whistleblower guy who did the op-ed in the New York Times. And so he's suggesting that Stephen Miller has all these draconian plans to do X, Y, and C uh, against immigrants and so on. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. And... He, this person has also argued that uh, Biden is saying some good things about criminal justice reform now and that and has kind of asked, how much weight do you put on what he did in the past and how much weight do you put on the future? Because he's saying going forward, he's going to do X, Y and Z. Trump is saying, you know, this, this and this. But I think so often they're taking what Trump is saying and blowing it out of proportion and acting, you know, in the same way that on racism, they've taken statements that just don't say anything racist and made them racist and pretended they were and kind of blown it up. But it is a, it is a thorny question because I think the best argument Trump had in the debate was, Joe, you've been there 47 years and now you're telling us you got all these plans to fix everything. What did you do for 47 years? Where were your plans? And past performance is indeed the best indicator of future performance. And it strikes me that after a term of Donald Trump, I'm less scared of Donald Trump than I was four years ago. And I'm about equally scared of Joe Biden as I was four years ago. <clears throat> and I say that not that I have no fears about Mr. Trump, but I'll tell you, uh, my fears are also allayed in part because the media is so anti-Trump that he's not likely to get away with a lot of bad behavior. And in essence, one of the downsides to a Biden victory is that I think the media goes back 
to being that. <clears throat> I think they're over the top, so they, they can pull it back a little bit. But I'm afraid they pull it back to Obama media status, which is, can we fluff your pillow? And do you have something called to drink? And if we ask anything that's too tough, just tell us to stop. Um, I mean, the media was in the tank for Obama. And my fear is that they are being super over the top aggressive because they hate Donald Trump's guts. And that when someone is president who isn't Donald Trump, we're going to get again, whatever they feel like dishing out to us and not the sort of investigations and and hard-nosed journalism. And look, some of that is, you know, I'm sure every journalist out there is going, some of that is that, you know, seven of the 12 people we had working here are no longer working here. We can't do everything we once did. I understand that. I deeply sympathize with it because it's hurting us all that, that we don't have more information that's, that's good information. Um, but the problem is exacerbated by narrative-driven, political, partisan media. And it's the kiss of death, I think, for media long-term. It's, uh, it's, it, I think they have to step back and, and reflect. Well, yeah, except I don't really think there's any saving them. I think that we are about ready to see them exit the scene in some way that I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but... But then maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't look at Biden the same way I look at Trump, not really because Trump is weird and Biden is what he he's always been. I think Biden is not a leader. I think Trump is a leader. I think Biden is a follower of the deep state and the Democratic National Committee and whoever who has this. I think he's very much a follower uh, and much more so than Trump is, though Trump is easy to change based on a, a persuasive thing you've said on Fox News. But aside from that, uh, but but I think Biden is a creature of the deep state, and I don't know uh, what I... they're going to do. I don't know what they're up to, but the deep state grabbed the media, and the media is a creature of the deep state, I believe. That is, that they are all... They're all in bed together. They're interns. They're they've gotten. It's like the Federal Reserve and economists. So there's almost no economist in America who hasn't at one point gotten a grant from the Federal Reserve. And it's very hard to find an economist in America to say anything against the Federal Reserve. Similarly, <laughs> for the deep state. And this is an this is a makes us in a puts us in a very strange place. No, it is, and it's. I'm I'm not sure I'm as far um, as convinced as you are, that it's as deep as you are. But I'm I'm convinced there's way more. The truth is we should be more concerned just about the political cross-pollination where, I mean, George Stephanopoulos is, is running Bill Clinton's campaign and then is is at ABC commenting as if he's, you know, nonpartisan. It, 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 the media isn't even very, you know, self-aware about stuff like that, I think. Um, no, I I, uh, I hope that there's some sort of change, but I, I have become, uh, after being very excited about the possibilities of the internet and social media and and people all over the, the world running around with smartphones, um, I've become very scared about the ability for people in power to control information and uh I, I think we're living in very interesting times, and these, this next decade is, is, you know, could 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 be a huge turning point one way or the other. But it's it's 
you know, the, the, the fact that in places, you know, Punjab and, and uh, where, where else, somewhere else in India, they did the same thing where they hit the kill switch on the Internet and stuff. And, and, uh, and China has, has done very well outfitting everybody with technology that, you know, that they can use, but that the government has all kinds of knowledge of every move they make. This is, uh, you know, so many of the things that 20, 30 years ago were dystopian novels are happening. And it's scary enough when they happen in communist China. But when we spend a lot of time talking about the stories that are being censored, not censored by the government, but just blocked by, by huge private corporate power, that certainly has certain advantages that appear to come from the government. And I think there's some, I know some libertarians who've had some pushback on whether they, you know, they shouldn't get the aspects of, what is it, 231 or whatever, 234, the, the section of the, of the endless uh, U.S. code that, that kind of says that they're exempt from certain lawsuits and so on. Um, but, you know, whatever the solution ultimately is, we got a heck of a problem. And, and we have problems on core things like how we get honest information. Well, that's been about an hour and 20 minutes, so I think it's probably time to cut off this conversation and let Paul uh, go to sleep and experience the uh, joys of Halloween and pre-election jitters like a normal American. And I will stay up later and uh, try to make this into a podcast, which should be airing sometime on Saturday, Halloween. So what do we got here? This has been This Week in Common Sense for the last week of October 2020. You can find this podcast through a variety of podcatchers. It is hosted on SoundCloud. It is posted as a vlog or video on YouTube. And on my BitChute channel, I upload it there too, just for the pure joy of it. You can find us all over the place, but you must look at thisiscommonsense.org.